0: Here at Nonfic Pod. we're on hiatus at the moment, so we're bringing you some of the best episodes from our archive. This episode, from Spring 2021, was recorded when we were all watching Bridgerton for The Plot, and homeschooling was still a recent memory. Season 2 will be coming soon, and we have some exciting Patreon giveaways, so don't forget to look for us on Patreon. That's NonficPod on Patreon and you could be in with a chance to win some copies of some of the great books we've covered this season. And if you're looking to buy books, our new partner is the All Good Bookshop, which is based in Turnpike Lane, London. Have a look for them online at All Good Bookshop, and they will send you whatever book you're looking for, provided you pay them, of course. They're lovely people run by a cooperative, and I can highly recommend them. That's allgoodbookshop.co.uk. Since I became a parent I've been reading a lot of fairy tales. They all seem to go like this. Handsome prince rescues beautiful princess and they all live happily ever after. It's a tale as old as time or at least as old as Hans Christian Andersen via the Disney corporation. But life is not that simple, even and perhaps especially for anyone trying to date while wearing a crown. In his new book, Daniel Smith looks back at the love letters of kings and queens and what we see is that love is usually hard to find, hard to keep, and that loyalty and respect are actually some of the most beautiful and enduring qualities of any relationship. Today's guest is Daniel Smith, author of Love Letters of Kings and Queens. So welcome to this edition of Nonfic pod with burn that's me
1: and cod i'm here hello
0: hello so what do you reckon to fairy tales cod big fan not a big fan
1: i don't know they're so neat aren't they so a lot of them it's so neat and they're quite i quite like the gory ones like the original <laughs> fairy tales with the old feet being chopped off etc grandmothers being eaten you know that's mm-hmm. my best. but Then I'm not so keen on the general prince rise to the rescue and actually damsel in distress, that kind of jazz. No, not interested. The the mysticism and the magic I do like. What about you?
0: Yeah, since having to read some of these things to, to my daughter who is about to turn five, um yeah the gender essentialism of most of them is nauseating. And I, I, I try to avoid them as much as I can. Um but the thing that really gets to me, especially after sixteen years of marriage, is the phrase and they lived happily ever after. I was like, what a fucking cop out. <laughs> this idea that marriage sorry, a wedding is the end of all of your travails and marriage from that point on is just like yeah. plain sailing actually, uh, when actually marriage is like any relationship damned hard work um, but where do you fall down on love letters do you do you like a good gushy I love you my sweetie bab bab or are you more of a you know get to the point
1: well firstly no one's ever called me sweetie bab bab and I feel like I've really missed no. Oh, I love a love
0: letter. Oh well in this episode we get we get to hear some very, very glurgesome uh terms of endearment. So oh. yeah. Sweetie Bab Bab is nothing. <gasps> Sweetie Bab Bab. Um, yeah. Uh so reading this book, uh Love Letters of Kings and Queens and looking at the love letters from Edward to Wallace Simpson Oh man there are some nauseating terms of endearment, particularly between um Edward and Wallace Simpson or from Edward to Wallace Simpson. They they did make me want to gnaw my own feet off. Um, one of the things I noticed is that yeah even when you wear a crown, or perhaps especially when you wear a crown. Relationships are hard work, yeah?
1: Mm. It does make me wonder, you're talking about that line, and they all lived happily ever after. How many people have been skewed by that? How many relationships have never lived up to the fairy tales that we heard as kids? The book we've got this week is Love Letters of Kings
0: and Queens. And some of those love letters do show that Pandemic is nothing compared to your loved one being off, you know, fighting wars in Russia or trying to sire an heir or something. So I kind of feel like trying to navigate homeschooling in a pandemic is pretty small fry compared to what some of these couples have been
1: to. When you tell those fairy tales to your youngest, do you... Ad lib a bit at the end. <laughs> they all lived happily ever after, except they didn't, because
0: then the in-laws arrived. Oh yes, there's always that, isn't there? Actually, my in-laws are wonderful. My husband's in-laws are terrible. I tend to ad lib during the story as well. It's like, and then he leant over the sleeping princess and stole a kiss, and that is sexual assault. Good consent is important, yo. This is gross. <laughs> and then the wicked stepmother was asking who was the fairest in the land because as women we're taught to value ourselves depending on our desirability and our appearance and we'll be having none of that so yeah i get a little right on which means it's it's worked brilliantly because it means my daughter will not let me read her those sorts of post disney version fairy tales so yeah the original ones the gory ones she doesn't like because they're gory as fuck um but the disney ones she doesn't like because mummy gets a little so she gets her feminism on M- my favorite book to read to her actually is Arabella and mortimer uh which has a delightful young girl and her pet raven and nobody's rescuing oh, anybody. great <laughs> so yeah i think at the moment she would much rather be arabelle or possibly mortimer than a princess um but i'm
1: trying to remember if i went through a wanting to be a princess phase do you remember having one of those I was wondering that, actually, while you were speaking and trying to remember it. And I think possibly I did want to be a princess, but my mum couldn't afford the Disney-themed, like, Princess Jasmine outfits or whatever. She was the princess that I most wanted to be, obviously, because she had the flying carpet, man. right? No, I think I mostly wanted to be a farmer. bit different. Right.
0: Yeah, I wanted to be a nun for a while because I I heard that they get to uh, basically do a lot of reading. Nobody told me about the the slightly limited range of things you're meant to read if you're a nun. Uh, Then after that, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Where did Um, that come from? Yeah, I just saw Top Gun when I was very young, probably too young to have seen it. I just wanted to go very, very fast, very, very high up. Yeah, I think in terms of literary characters, I quite fancy being Heidi. I wanted a goat and to live that kind of rural life, which is bizarre because I grew up in Yorkshire and I actually legitimately hated it because, you know, there were no buses and I was miles away from anywhere. But for some reason, Heidi made it look good. Our guest on this episode, Daniel Smith, has written over 30 non-fiction books, including the hugely successful How to Think Like series. His book, The Peer and the Gangster, was described by The Observer as revelatory and hilarious, uh, while The Ardlamont Mystery is an enthralling real-life murder mystery, according to the Daily Mail. His next book, The Love Letters of Kings and Queens, is out in February welcome Daniel.
2: Hello thanks for having me.
0: I really enjoyed I got the sort of voyeuristic thrill out of reading the love letters of kings and queens and one of the things that really struck me was this consistent theme of I suck but you're divine uh, that runs through so many of these love letters. Uh, were you surprised at all that even kings queens and emperors are occasionally a little insecure when wooing?
2: Yeah I guess so up to a certain point and and but then some of them you just think ah oh, these are people just pulling their best moves so the, the Henry the letters you think which wife do you have to be before you start wondering if he really means all this stuff that he's saying to you? So you have those kind of ones. But then, yeah, I was really struck by, for instance, the Charles I letters written at a time of civil war and utter crisis for the monarchy. And you still get this, you get a real insight into the real life relationship and that the the marriage between Charles I and Henrietta Maria wasn't always enormously happy. There was an underlying affection and respect there that comes out in those letters. And as the civil war progressed, you could see the power balance sort of changing between the two of them, so that Henrietta um, almost became the, the guiding hand, really, and, he, and was instructing Charles as to what he should be doing. So I, I found those kind of letters really interesting. And when you see these figures that you know from history in quite a different light, and then you have people like Edward VIII, and maybe those are, are some of the most romantic letters in other respects, they're some of the most cloying as well. He uses sort of baby talk and nicknames, and and they can be slightly cringy. But then we we have this vision of, of Edward and Wallace. But he did give everything up for her. Mm-hmm. So actually, you know, behind all of that, you've got again a man who was, albeit briefly, king. But you know, who who also was this highly emotional character that utterly comes out on the page of pages of his love letters. Yeah,
0: it does, doesn't it? He's utterly besotted with Wallace.
2: Mm. And probably more than she was with him as well. I think the tone of some several of her letters, while well, she absolutely gives him get-out clauses all the time. And, and you sort of mm. suspect that she wouldn't have minded too much if he'd taken one or two of those get-out clauses along the way. <laughs> but no, you know, he just kept on going in there full throttle. Quite what she made of it all is, is less clear, perhaps, I think, still.
0: I, that's one of the interesting things about where we have both sides of the correspondence. Um one of the ones that mm. really struck me, we've got Rosie Wilby on this season talking about the breakup monologues and the notion of conscious uncoupling, yes. uh, which is thought to have originated with Gwyneth Paltrow, but actually pre-existed them. Um But Prince George's first letter, the, the breakup letter, is, is quite a conscious uncoupling letter. It's, it's not our fault, we don't get along, why not live apart and be happy? Yeah. But then when you see Caroline's letter, she's not Exactly on the same page. First of all, do you find yourself ever rooting for one partner over the other? Are there a few where that you're sort of thinking, oh, that one's a bad egg?
2: Definitely, definitely. I mean, I think George, um, Prince George, is one of those ones. Later, George the Fourth, you know, he he was a cad and a bounder, and and that's pretty clear, you know, all the way through. So yes, I, I think it's difficult not to pick a side there, as it is with Henry the Eighth as well. When when you know how the story is going to end each time, it's difficult not to think I've got your card marked, mate. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, in other but other ones, I think it's less clear. I mean, a lot of these the relationships that documented in the book it's they open a window onto the complexities of the relationships and very often it's women with very little choice in what's happening to them in in terms of marital decisions but also it's men quite often being awful but themselves not having a huge amount of the the ability to dictate their own fates you know they they're so born to duty that's expected of them and utterly defines their lives as well so i think often you get to the end of whichever chapter with whichever coupling. And, and I kind of feel sorry for both parties very often. You think, yeah, nobody's really come out of this very happily. And of course, it's from an age and strata of society, which the, these were not love marriages. And certainly George and Caroline, I don't think they'd met until about three days before the marriage. Um, He'd already had an unofficial marriage, uh, which was never publicly acknowledged. I mean, it, it was not a great start to a relationship. And then Caroline's in the situation, where really her choice is... To stay in the marriage and get as good a life out of it as she can create and, and she just comes up against this force of George who's beyond caring very shortly after the wedding, what happens to her and it's just horrible really isn't it it's horrible to read but fascinating as well.
0: As you say that idea of duty and expected roles and particularly sort of quite narrow roles for women but also the way that uh, those of us who are commoners never have to worry mm. about things like begetting an heir so you talk about Napoleon Pauline and Josephine and the fact that Yeah, they had to split up so that Napoleon could could beget an heir. When you're reading that, the tearing between love and duty, uh, is there anyone you particularly admire in the book for having either succumbed to duty or stepped up for duty? Or do you quite like the rebels who go, forget duty, I'm going to run off with this American divorcee.
2: Looking at from our moment in history where we basically believe in love marriages, it's difficult to look at any of these marriages where whoever it might be is engaged to their partner at the age of seven or something like that you know they meet 12 hours before the wedding and it's very difficult to ever think oh what a marvelous setup that is um i quite like the rebels like i said i I think edward the eighth is a very divisive figure and he in many ways he's he's very unappealing but within the fairly narrow confines of whether you go for your duty or for love I, i think there's something at least intriguing and kind of appealing that the story played out as it did there so I quite like that as a story um, I think that's probably where I am with it more I like the stories rather than necessarily mm. massively respecting the characters within them and yeah and then you have you know figures like Napoleon and, and, and Josephine it, it's a tragedy isn't it I, mm. I don't think I admire Napoleon that he gave up his one true great love um, so that he could get a male heir I don't think that's the thing I think what a guy for doing that but you know I, you have complete sympathy with the situation and you see how difficult it must been for both of them and I think Napoleon and Josephine are quite intriguing as well because that's one of the correspondences where there's an awful lot from the the male figure and not an a lot from the female figure and I think there's been quite a lot of suggestion over the years that again they definitely loved each other but Napoleon might well have loved her more than she loved him and you know very often his letters he absolutely lays his soul bare for her and then the next letter that he writes sort of starts with something along the lines of oh. You know, I sent you that one three weeks ago, and I've not heard anything back from you yet. Mm. And you, you kind of have some interesting power balances going on there as well with some of these figures that you do think were, theirs was a love match, and I think theirs was. But you know, they both had a lot of affairs very shortly after they were married. You know, they, they didn't stay faithful for very long, and then you know they they come to the conclusion that well, there's no male heir on the horizon, mm. so we'll we'll. Um, knock it on the head for now and it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? <laughs> who who do you admire in those situations? I don't know.
0: I I did like as well the the fact that as you mentioned most of those letters most of what we know about Napoleon's relationship with Josephina, from Napoleon's letters and there is that sense in in his letters that that occasionally she's slightly ghosting him Yeah, definitely Yeah, what do you do when you have one half is very clearly written you've already alluded to the fact that it's never safe to conjecture the entire state of the relationship based on just what one person is writing
2: I was just going to say I think you just have to read them bearing that in mind that we are inevitably getting only part of a story, even when there's copious correspondence on both sides, you know, it's an insight and it's to be treated as an insight rather than chapter and verse. You never know the state of somebody else's relationship do you, so you can only work from the evidence you've got. What we're able to do in a quite sort of joyful and and fun way with these, I think, but not to think that we know the full picture all the time. And
0: it is a lot of fun. You mentioned earlier the fact that while these are love letters they're not always necessarily entirely ardent. There is a lot of, and here's this other stuff going on. What what Mm. ought I to do? How does that feel when you basically look back through history and see these phenomenal partnerships?
2: Yeah, I find those in some ways the most interesting. Because like I said, I think the Charles I uh, letters are, are really fascinating just because you know what is going on in quite a lot of detail in terms of historical, political background. and and to see these two people who ultimately come across as, albeit highly powered and entitled people, but, you know, essentially normal, ordinary people with normal, ordinary feelings of fear and uncertainty and affection and all of those kind of things. I think it comes across very clearly in their relationship. So I found that those particularly interesting. I also found that the Victoria and Albert ones great from that point of view as well. In some ways, they're hilarious to begin with they're hilarious so you have queen victoria writing to to her favorite uncle um leopold king of belgium basically saying i you know i don't want to get married and you're sending your nephew um albert uh, over and i'll see him but i'm making no guarantees and all this kind of stuff and then seemingly about five minutes after she's seen albert she's just utterly besotted and it's when can we get married sort of thing you know i think i think she proposed to him in about about five days after they met. And I think that's great that she was the one that did the pose. It's fantastic. And then it's not long before you get this other, these other aspects that come in where Albert is trying to manoeuvre so that he can have, uh, he can nominate his own staff and define what his role's going to be. And Victoria writing these slightly testy letters back, basically saying... Albert, you've not understood at all and you're going to have to play by my rules, our British rules. And so that's quite interesting to see. And I read an article recently actually about them and Albert really struggled for a long time to define what his role was going to be. And, and he in the end, he accepted he was going to play second fiddle to Victoria in public life. But there seems to have been this then within their private life he was very much into keeping her in her place domestically and he would fire members of her staff and dictate how domestic life should be run and then um, she seemingly was prone to tantrum that he would re- extremely frustrate him and he would tell her off for them and apparently he used to then give her certificates of improvement oh! when she <laughs> apologised and said she wouldn't do it again. So you know the, lazy <laughs> <the> awful <laughs> insight into their domestic life. Yeah I, I actually found that out after I edited this book and I thought wow that's very interesting those letters are very interesting because there's this real difference between clearly Victoria recognises she is a public figure and a private individual and obviously a source of some friction for the two of them going back to your your question yeah I I love those ones which really reveal not necessarily the, the grand passions all the time but sometimes more the mundaneness of married life even for these people
0: I'm wondering about two centuries hence, when historians have—will they have access to the uh, the love WhatsApp messages or the the courting TikToks of kings yeah. and queens? Are we are we doomed to lose these sorts of human insights into ephemera? I, I you think?
2: we are really sadly in terms of in terms of the sort of book that I've, I've just been editing, yeah, it's difficult to imagine that there's going to be a similar volume of material that makes it through the centuries. I, you know, you have that sense of we're being an incredibly well documented age, but perhaps that's to the detriment of history um, in that we're becoming so well documented that it, it's piles of digital really? information and quite how we're going to be able to get through those and find find the needles in the haystacks of it all. Um, I don't know. I think, it, I think we probably are Going to lack some of this sort of material in times to come, and I think that's really sad if that is the case. I hope it isn't. I hope it. Well, is.
0: I'm really glad that you have had access to this incredible body of literature um, and of of correspondence. And I have to say, anyone who has been enjoying Bridgerton should really get a hold of a copy of this book. This is the trials, the strifes, the the triumphs, the mundanity. All yeah. of it is entirely glorious. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much to Daniel. You can find Daniel Smith at Danielsmithbooks.co.uk and as Dan Smith underscore writer on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us on Nonfic Pod, Daniel.
2: Thank you very much.
0: What are you reading other than of course the ardent love letters that have been sent to you?
1: <laughs> well, I yeah the one love letter that my mum sent me when I was six years old oh, it was blank, no, um, what have I been reading i've been reading. Rosie Wilby, hey. break up oh, well, Yeah, this
0: is brilliant from the, oh, my darling, I love you. Please, please love me too. my whittle snookums to fuck you. It's over. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And it's good that it's over and I'm glad. So that's quite, that's quite exciting. But for, for those of you listening who are not already aware of our schedule, we have Rosie Wilby as one of our interviewees in a few weeks time. So yes, I'm plunging headfirst into the world of broken relationships and it's juicy and (laughs) it's it's quite it's it's nice to read about the not happily ever afters makes you feel a bit less um like a loser me thinks
0: yeah i think sometimes a a good breakup can be better than a lousy relationship sometimes
1: all the time emma all the time a breakup is better than a lousy relationship okay this no this is
0: true all the time a good breakfast. Yes. You're yes. right. You're right. Anyway, what about you, um, lady? What have you yeah. been reading? And well, yeah, I mean, I'm jumping on Rosie's podcast and uh, listening to the heck out of that. She she actually has a podcast called The Breakup Monologues, which I am catching up with. But I've got some really good reads coming up for the series. Um, I've just been sent a copy of Aftershocks by Nadia Owosu <gasps> and have also been sent uh, The Disordered Cosmos by Dr. Chanda prescott weinstein And I cannot wait mm. to dive in. Hey, you lucky things, you're listening to the patrons-only special cut of the non-fic pod. This is the shit-I-wish-I'd-known edit with special insider details. It's our way of saying thank you so much for your incredibly valuable support. So Daniel Smith, who spoke to us about Love Letters of Kings and Queens, is also an editor. As an editor, what do you want from an author? What do authors do that makes your job much oh, easier?
2: That is a good question. I think the best thing that an author can bring to their editor is openness, if I'm honest, a willingness to actually take on board what's suggested and realise that we're all kind of batting on the same side. Because as as a writer as well, I know absolutely what it's like to get a manuscript back and see all the, the corrections on there, corrections, suggestions, and your heart sinks. But then to have that discipline, I think, to think some of this might actually be worth doing and to go through it with an open mind, I think is my number one top tip for what an author can, can do to make life easier.
0: And you have now over 30 books, I think, on your backlist. My colleague Georgie has demanded that I ask how on earth you find the energy. So do you tend to overlap your projects or do you finish one before starting another one? And what's the sort of balance of being asked to write things, being commissioned to write things and you going out and pitching? How do you get to a backlist of 30 in nonfiction? Or how did you personally do that?
2: Well, I think the first thing I should say is you can check on me on any given day and you might not be struck by my extraordinary level of energy, I have to say. Um, On a good day, perhaps, but not every day.
0: Is that to do with the fact that you've got a, you know, two primary school-aged kids? Is that, is yeah. that partly true? Yeah, that's,
2: that sometimes you know, makes a difference, I'll be honest with you. But um, no, in terms of energy, you know, I think actually this last year's kind of hammered it home to me that this is a really nice job and it took a long time for me to kind of get a foothold doing it. Um, But now I have and people essentially do me the honour of either entrusting me with a project to write or taking on a project that I devise and so I feel really lucky and I think that helps with the energy you know I know how many people would like to be able to do this sort of thing for their job and would kill for the chance probably so I kind of feel like you know I don't have too much to complain about and and, and that helps keep me going. In terms of the split of of work a lot of what I do comes from publishers several of whom I've got long term relationships with now they devise ideas in-house and they'll come and find me as a writer and then I kind of I like to have m- one of my own projects going maybe one every 18 months to two years because those ones tend to be particularly research intensive and passion projects in in lots of ways and um, which take a little bit longer um than than when somebody's uh, approached me with a book to order as it were and in terms of how I structure work I really try not to Massively overlap,
0: right? So having a nice like compartment. Yeah,
2: there. yeah. I have a lot of um a lot of Excel sheets on the go most of the time, and inevitably because of the way publishers work, there might well be some overlap in terms of when one project ends and another begins. Because I defy anyone to be able to organise this sort of career sufficiently enough that you can absolutely choose your own timetable on these things. But uh, what I really try to avoid is having intensive writing of Two projects going on at the same time. If I need to gently start researching one whilst I'm finishing off another, I will do that. Or more likely, I will just forge on with finishing one and then get going on the on the next one in a slightly fresher way uh, once that one's been put to bed. But yeah, I I have had a couple of occasions where it's got quite intense and there's been a couple of deadlines very close to each other. And I've managed it, but I wouldn't say that's the, the most enjoyable <laughs> way to go about writing.
0: Yeah. And how does it feel swapping from uh, the love story of Ronnie Cray and Lord Boothby to the <laughs> uh, the love stories of kings and queens?
2: It's remarkably similar. <laughs>
0: the Peer and the Gangster came out relatively recently, didn't it? That was... It did last summer, yeah.
2: Yeah, and and I, I that's part of what I love about this job, really. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not an academic writer where I have a particular specialism that I keep coming back to. You know, uh, my skills are in. Communicating all sorts of stories, really, and and that's part of the fun of it for me. And I like that challenge, particularly when I've completed the challenge, I should say, but um, rather than when you're in the midst of it. But I like that challenge of taking on different sorts of subjects and, and working out how we, you know, how are you going to do this? How are you going to turn this into a, a story, um, which is essentially what you do. Whatever your subject matter is, you're trying to turn it into some sort of story that somebody can buy into. And and whether that's you know 1960s organized criminals and politicians, or you know, romantic missives from the 13th century, or whatever, it's still a, there is still that overarching challenge, which is the same like, how, how can I take this raw information, this raw material, and turn it into a book that, that kind of makes sense as you read through it? And so, yeah, the, the transitions for me, I, I enjoy them, I enjoy that I like covering lots of subjects and I learn lots of new stuff quite a lot of which then might fall out of my head fairly shortly afterwards. But, you know, for a while it's in there and hopefully some of it sticks in there. Um, so, yeah, good fun.
0: Yeah. Thank you once again, Daniel, for your industry insights. Uh, again, you can find Daniel at danielsmithbooks.co.uk as well as Smith underscore writer on Twitter. And although he says it falls out of his head, I really think that Daniel Smith is on my fantasy quiz too.
2: <laughs> Thank you.
0: Nonfic Pod is brought to you by Beatrice Bazal, Emma Byrne, Georgie Codd, and Mike Wire. Our Patreon supporters are Claire and Alexander, David Corney, Alessandra Coyne, Nicola Myrams, and Mike Wire. Copious penis collada. What's the plural of <laughs> penis coladas? I like Penis no Collada. Is it like Attorneys General or... Penis, <laughs> penis ca- Collada.
1: It's definitely <laughs> Penis Collada. Yeah.
0: You can really help us by rating, reviewing and sharing Non-FigPod. Yeah. Every little helps to build our audience and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads.